Okay, so we're at Oticon, and it's over. I mean, it's now officially over. We're at a table with some people, and not everyone. You don't have to be on this show if you don't want to. We definitely have Evan Minto who's probably okay with being on our show. Oh, yeah, I'm always okay with being on a show. Unless you ambush me Fox News style at my car. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. And then do you guys want to say anything or not? Hi. I'm Ink. Ink says hi. Do you write for Evan's website, right? Yes. AnnieGamers.com. Visit it. AnnieGamers.com. Sure. Uh, I'm Vinny from uh, All Geeks Considered. It's a blog, a little blog I do myself with a few other people. Yeah, I noticed you. From, I remember you from Twitter. Yeah, yeah. So if we want to do really fast before our food comes, sort of the highlights of this convention. Uh, my favorite thing was I went to the, maybe not favorite, but a highlight. I went to the Yokai panel with uh, by Charles Dunbar, I think is his name. And it was a really super academic, anthropological look at a bunch of different yokai, with in- including like linguistic uh, breakdowns of like the names of yokai and the history of the legend. It was super informative and awesome. And I didn't know, I don't think Otakon has had like a featured panelist program before. If they did, I didn't notice it. But like he was one of the featured panelists. It was like F plus on the uh, schedule. Yeah, and so the only featured people were like, yeah, him, Mike Toole, Daryl Surratt. Yeah, I don't remember the fourth guy either, but there was a point where apparently there was a mix-up with Mike Tool's registration, so he's in line, and he had a program, and he was like, this is me in the program guide. I assure you I'm registered for this con. No, what was your highlight, or do you want me to go the other way? A highlight? One highlight. I don't know. No, the milkshake was, machine was really oversold. That was not a highlight. That was not a... It was a, a low light, or a... Were there's lights underneath the car? Like the underlights, yeah, yeah. So... I don't know. Even even this convention that I just attended, like all previous conventions run together in my mind. I'm beginning to have that Lazarus Long problem where Lazarus Long, he lived for, you know, thousands and thousands of years. And so pretty, pretty soon, well, not soon, over the course of his life, everything was running together. So he would uh, wake up and reach down for a book that he'd been reading and then realize, no, I, I finished that book 50 years ago. So... It all runs together. Uh, Heinlein from uh, there are a couple books, but that's not important right now. Here, here. Wait, so you really totally dodged that question? <laughs> there was not like you, all that Lazarus Long stuff, and there was no event in that in that answer. What did we do? We did our panel. We went to uh, Paul Starr's panel, who's a translator of Spice and Wolf and uh, Haruhi Suzumi, and he did a really great translation panel. He'd never done a, his own panel before by himself. He'd been on other translation panels. I thought his panel was really interesting, because he talked about the, how hard it is to translate Japanese. He's a, a very charming guy, and he, he stopped himself from telling people, don't go into this business, because there's no money, and you'll be miserable. Uh, he hinted at it, but uh, he didn't... Uh... Someone asked him, how do you feel? How does translating make you feel? Or how do you feel about translating? At which point he burst into not quite madness or hysterical laughter, which, but almost, where he laughed a lot, and then he sort of demonstrated a chart with his hand where he's like angry and anxious. No, not angry, just anxious and horrible until finally he finishes the book and then feels relieved. So like then it dives down like a steep roller coaster. But the laughter went on for quite a while. It was also the second question in, and he looked at the guy and said, Why would you ask that question? But really, it was a good panel, and uh, I hope they have him back. Uh, It's always really tough to pick my favorite things, uh, so I'll maybe pick one of my favorites, like you said. Yeah, one of my highlights. Um, Dave Riley's panel, it was video games as literature approaching a new criticism was like a really good discussion of, of 
what criticism means in video games, and it tackled a lot of topics. Like Dave tackled a lot of the like what it means to critique something and to review something, and then uh, Ajay, who was his co-panelist, tackled a lot of like what it means for something to be a video game and what that means as art. And so they t- looked at it from like different perspectives, all sort of focusing on video games as art, and that was. Uh, it's really interesting, especially because like I, Ink and I run uh, Fandom and Criticism, which is a panel all about criticism and, and how that deals with fandom. And Dave's panel tied right into that, so it kind of got us thinking about topics that we uh, we talked about later. But so when you think about your your traditional video game review, I've got this this schematic here that sort of breaks down the usual sections. You've got an introduction where we sort of play to the crowd and say, "This is a game." For gamers, made by gamers who are gamers. So we sort of pander a little. Uh, and then we say, hey, there's graphics in this video game. And we spend like 100 words, 200 words talking about frame rate. This, yeah, polygons. This, this game has resolution. This game has trees. Some of, the, some of them are oak trees, maybe. Uh, and then we, 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 then we spend the bulk, the bulk of it, the part what you shoot bullets at gets. So this is probably what you're most used to in, like, in your, your mainstream reviews. You get like a pretty long couple paragraphs about like the M16 has 30 bullets and fires pretty good. And when you shoot a guy in the head, he dies. But sometimes like, there's like really strong guys and you've got to shoot them in the head like three times before they die. And that's where we spend a lot of our time. And then... We have this little tiny paragraph at the bottom that's so small. I've made it small enough that you couldn't read, but my intention was not to make it so small that I couldn't read it. But in fact, uh, in fact it is so small that I can't read uh, it. So I, and then in this little, little tiny paragraph, somewhere towards the end, we say, also this game is an extremely complicated deconstruction of Call of Duty-style games that, while not perfect, really throws into sharp relief the mechanisms of military shooters and our reasons for playing them. And then we just skip to the score. <laughs> Which is a stunning 7.5555555. Which means that we're not buying the game. We wouldn't buy this game. <laughs> 7.55555, why so low? Uh, and then we, you know, we got to break it down, because just having the, the 7.55555 is not enough. We got to say graphics, and 7. seven is graphics. Shooty bits, 6.5. Deconstructing war shooters, eh, 7.2. <laughs> so why do we do this? Uh, what we think of as, a, uh, as mainstream reviews, uh, a lot of people claim, they, a lot of people say, why can't you write an objective review? Uh, this is literally <laughs> impossible. Uh, it's, it's also a conversation that's been rehashed to the end of time, so I won't spend a lot of time on it, but as human beings, we are inherently subjective, and as we are appreciating pieces of art, you know, we're not writing a consumer reports review. We're not writing about a lawnmower or a vacuum cleaner. So... You can talk about frame rate and you can talk about graphics and things like that, but they only get you so far. Uh, and this is that sort of jokey thing that I put in there is, you know, it's exaggerated, but the point is that we spend a lot of time talking about graphics and we spend a lot of time talking about the, the minute details of how you shoot everything in the video game. And then the example game that I, I didn't really properly introduce, I was, I'm, I'm talking here about Spec Ops Alliance. Uh, these reviews are non-holistic, like I say on the slide. So we have a, a graphics paragraph, we have a sound paragraph, and they come out as these really stilted chunks of writing without a lot of flow between them uh, and without a lot of depth of ideas. Uh, personally, I don't feel served when there's an a, a d- in-depth discussion of the, the center channel, 
where the, where the dialogue is coming from, if the game has a good 5.1 mix. In my experience, that's the thing you could spend one sentence talking about. Not like, oh, you know, you know, there's a lot of shooty parts and it's really fun. Oh, but whatever. It, uh, it totally recontextualizes every war shooter you've ever played. Full stop. And that's like the last thing they say about that. Uh, because what happens in Spec Ops The Line is that it stops being a game about shooting Arabs and it starts being a game about why do we shoot Arabs in video games. Or are these people Arabs? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also that. Uh, so what does having a 5.0 for graphics really add to a critical piece about Spec Ops The Line? Score undermines the text and it serves a market purpose, which is Metacritic, which doesn't really help us as game players. Uh, Metacritic has, is valued by people who make video games, or specifically corporations who publish video games, as a way of determining objective worth, uh, which doesn't have a lot of value, as I discussed. So why do we devote more than a cursory attention to features? Why do we have to spend 15 minutes on a podcast talking about how Spec Ops Align is a Gears of War clone and what a Gears of War clone entails? Like, we don't need to describe what a third-person shooter with cover mechanics is. I think even... Probably most of the people in this room know what that is, even if they don't play them. And so you need to understand your audience. Uh, you need to do your best to uh, show some critical literacy because we don't exist in a vacuum. So we don't reinvent the wheel is what I have on the slide here. <laughs> you, you'll see the PlayStation game featured next to it, Heart of Darkness. Uh, Spec Ops Align is, is greatly influenced by Heart of Darkness, which you all probably read in high school or college. It's, you know, it's got a lot of themes about reverting to this primeval state, about inhumanity, uh, about civilization. But who's, who talked about that in favor? Nobody did, because they wanted to talk about how many grenades the grenade launcher holds. Or <laughs> even after having talked about you know, you say, oh, yeah, it's a pretty smart game, how like, it talks about it takes these soldiers who go into this place wanting to be heroes and examines what being a hero is really about, uh, but, you know, the grenade launcher kind of sucked. So <laughs> why would anybody really bother to play this game? And, and on the other hand, when we do finally grasp onto something that say, hey, this is pretty smart, like, for example, Bioshock, we think about, like, uh, oh, wow, objectivism. Like, isn't that exciting that somebody's talking about that? Uh, well, objectivism has existed for a really long time. Bioshock did not invent it. It, it uh, invented a pretty good critique of it. Yeah. So we need to... Realize that video games have precursors, and we need to, when we're talking about Bioshock, maybe we should mention a couple things about Ayn Rand, or maybe we should say, what, it, what does Ayn Rand's philosophy espouse, and what is Bioshock trying to say about that? Instead of being like, eh, the parts where you hit with guys with wrenches are pretty good, 8.5. <laughs> so when you're talking about Spec Ops The Line, yeah, sorry, skip that. So yeah, we think of commercial performance as aesthetic quality. Uh, which is the little slide I have there where Call of Duty Black Ops sold 23 million copies. So Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 is the best game. Well, it had, I, I mean, no, HD install base, so I guess I don't, I don't know what that means even. But so we can see that Call of Duty games have been getting progressively better because Call of Duty World at War only sold 9 million and Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 sold twice as much as that, so it must be twice as good. And uh, I say that to you, and you're, you're like, that's ridiculous. Why would anybody think that? But that is sort of the logic that's espoused. I mean, I mean, if I could just jump in for once, uh, the language itself that slips in, and this is in popular literature and in, in the academic literature as well, um, 
when pe- when you read sort of critical pieces of literature that use you know terms like IP franchise like things like this and 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 discuss the quality of a game in terms of its success as a franchise. Will it warrant a sequel? That is not the kind of question that really tells us much about the game as a art object, as something, as what our experience was playing it, what we can say about it, what we want to talk about it afterwards. That's just telling someone how many units to push. Yeah. And the other, I guess, I'll mention one other little highlight that is not worth being my real highlight. Which is that, like, I got a super awesome reaction to my character design panel, The Changing Faces of Anime, because I got a bunch of Avatar The Last Airbender fans who were waiting for the panel afterwards. So, like, they, they packed the room, but they weren't there for my panel. And apparently a bunch of them were really impressed by my panel, even though the Avatar one was canceled. So people were like, wow, that was so great. And I was, like, on this post-panel high for, like, an hour. <laughs> I guess I'm going to take the cheap road out. I'm going to go with the uh, Masao Mariyama panel this year, which was, this is the fir- first time in, in, in a while that he, I mean, he's had a lot of new things now because he's on, at a new company. So he, he, he seems to always see, he's a, he has a new energy this time around. Like, he's usually been, like, active and, you know, upbeat, but, like, this year he seems really in a different mood. And I think, he, oh, he's the, he's the best Masao Mariyama. He, he, and, but he left, yeah, and he left Hit Madhouse this year. And formed a new company, which did Kids on the Slope and the uh, Mappa. They're naked. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like it, or is a shortening for it? wanted to name it something that sounds that. originally wanted to name it with a word that means bare naked. And then. Is that what it was? Oh, I may have misunderstood that. Okay. So he's kind of going over what he wants to do with the company still, because he hasn't really. It's not really fully established yet. Even though they've got this one great show going. And he, you know, talking about well, I need money for things, and we're both, and the three of us have said at one point or another, like we want to give you money if you look like Kickstarter. We didn't last say this panel, but we all kind of talked about this separately. He actually uh, at that panel, the three, three. I'm trying to think. He definitely talked about two titles he wanted to do, um, but you know, he talked about Kids on the Slope, and the, the big things he was talking about was somebody asked him about an animation, an animated adaptation of Pluto the Naoki Urasawa manga. And what's interesting is he didn't just say, oh yeah, I love Pluto or whatever. He said, yeah, we've looked at that and we have uh, figured out that it would take us this amount of work to do it and we don't currently have the budget to make it. But clearly they have had meetings about adapting Pluto. Um, And then the other one is that he was talking about um, he was talking about the Dreaming Machine, Satoshi Kon's movie, also as if like MAPPA is seriously considering making that. And I know last year he he had, he had said to, uh, in one of the Q&A things that he was planning on making a new studio for the, I think what I heard was for the sole purpose of raising money to make the Dreaming Machine. <laughs> yeah. Deadline too. He said uh, within five years' time, he wants to have the money to finally make that. I'm running on about eight hours sleep for four days, so uh, <laughs> uh, apart from the, the literature and... Uh, video game literature criticism panel and uh, the Murayama panel, I'd have to say I had some pretty uh, shallow, great moments. The first was uh, a meme thing that started here where people were circling the convention singing. Yeah. And, oh, excellent. Yeah.
And at one point, uh, Kate from Reverse Thieves, Evan, uh, Vince, or Vinny, and I were... Sorry. <laughs> uh, one's your dad, though. <laughs> uh, we were all hanging out at the lobby, and Eric, too. Um, and they ended up singing at the info at the information booth, which was their like finish point. And while they were finishing up, a group of people who were cosplaying as the Doctor uh, came by and were raising their uh, sonic screwdrivers, like uh, lighters, as they sang Queen, uh, as the uh, the group that was running around sang Queen. Anyway. Yeah. 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 I think it was We Are the Champions or something. Yeah. Yeah. The other one was a, a panel for one of the uh, Japanese voice actresses, Ai Nanoka. Or Nanoka? Nanoka. Yeah. Yeah. She did the voice work for one of the characters in uh, Madoka. And at one point, there was a cosplayer who came up in a Kyube outfit. And she just sort of feigned that, you know, terror in a very cute way. Like, and then she went on to compliment the cosplayer as very pretty. And the, the, the cosplayer just went, Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I just thought that was a pretty cool moment. It's adorable. Cube, it? That guy's no good. <laughs> I know. Stay away from Cube. Seriously. It's bad news. Uh, I can tell you things. You don't want to know my wish. Let me tell you about Cube. Yeah. Let me tell you about Cube. Uh, uh, hanging around on the docks with Cube, with Bots Maru, smoking. That's Noah's old joke. Who knows? What else happened? Uh, I really also like the fandom and criticism panel. Not, no, I, mi- I didn't get up early enough for your panel. I mean, Dave's criticism panel, which was not, in fact, at 9 in the morning or whatever. Uh, Dave's was at right after... The Anime News Network panel, where um, I asked if I could record it, but they didn't want to have Chris McDonald on the show. Yeah, I was going to record the ANN one, but they didn't let me because Chris McDonald is like owns ANN, and they want to keep the ca- the podcast very separate from the business, and they make a big deal about that, and so they didn't want to use it. But almost everyone in the audience for that, uh, which I do want to get across, like they desperately want to hear. At, they do they do want an East Coast ANN. Uh, cast show where they all love listening to ANN cast it's the biggest podcast ever like that's one of the only podcasts I still listen to <laughs> so we're like Radio Lab and a couple other things um, and so they all wanted a live show like what Anime Expo gets and indeed like over the several years that ANN cast has been around it's like at Anime Expo like at first it's like only a few people listen to the show and then lots of people listen to the show and then the last one they did it was like every single person who asked a question was like long time listener first time caller and then eventually they just started saying first time long time because everyone was a listener of the show and it was so like ridiculously apparent yeah, when they asked how many people listened to the ANCAST at the, the panel it was half if not more than half of the room yeah it was like 80% of the room Like, and a lot of people ha- when we did Q&A they were like when can we have an East Coast ANN cast? When can we have an East Coast ANN cast? So when Ed Sizemore wanted to do like a pirate cast, like his sentiment is right on that there are a lot of people who love the ANN cast and want an East Coast one. It's just uh, Otakon's timing is so close that, and it's so expensive still to fly across the country unless like airline prices specifically drop very soon and Otakon goes back to August. Zach can't really afford to fly out here and do a show. But meanwhile, Justin Savakis has lost like a ton of weight in the last several months. Like no one recognized him. He was that thin. I saw him in the press room and he was like, hey, Evan. And I was like, oh, oh, 
Oh, hi. <laughs> yeah, one of the uh, tech guys was saying, oh, Justin is here and blah, blah. First, the tech guy congratulated me on getting a job at Funimation. And I'm like, y- you don't mean me. You mean some other girl who works for ANN. It turned out it was uh, Gia, Gia Manor. And at first, I thought, he probably thinks I'm Gia. And then I blanked on Gia's name. Right, and I wondered why Gia wasn't on the panel. And it was because she was uh, going to work for Funimation, I guess. Which makes sense. She did move to Texas a couple years ago and knows everyone there. Anyway, one of the other Funimation people that we met when they did a screening of the Italia World Series movie at last year's Oticon for press, uh, was like this pro cosplayer who had turned into like a brand manager for Funimation. She was cosplaying as uh, Panny in the st- Panny and Stocking booth at the Funimation thing, where they had a stripper pole. We tried to watch them stripping, but they didn't really strip, and they didn't really they pole dance. Strip, but they might dance, but they didn't dance because it was the end of the convention. But also, why would they do that? I don't. She's a pro cosplayer. She's been cosplaying forever. Right, but is she a pro pole dancer? I don't know. Maybe she took a pole dancing fitness class. That was a thing for a while. They probably some units, though. I'm going to guess. I mean, people, you know, see a pole and people dancing on it. That'll get people over there at least. Yeah. There's a reason why High School of the Dead is the most popular show from Sentai Filmworks, right? Like, true. Yes, that's that true. is their best-selling title. Right. That's Zombies and boobs. Works, you can imagine a stripper pole at the Panty and Stocking booth will work. Here's the other big deal is we went to Gerald's The Art of Fan Service panel, which, um, although he'd been working on it for a while, seemed kind of thrown together because it's the first time he's done it. Yeah. But he, uh, he showed a clip from the anime that I'd heard of but I'd never seen, the one where it's like, samurai era sort of like only women and your power in society is based on the size of your breast they showed a clip from that it was really disturbing I can't remember I was trying to remember the name of it it's a really long title it's a point where I can't but someone else uh, Kensho or something like that Manyu Hikensho I think or I'm sure that'll be yeah that'll be the next episode of Fast Karate because Dave and Joel <laughs> Dave and Joel hadn't heard about that show and then they started speculating when we went back to the room they were like what if that worked, but also for man boobs? In that case, both of they were like both of us would be mid-level bureaucrats for sure. <laughs> but Noah would have not much power in society. Right, I would be not at the bottom, but second to the bottom. At the bottom would be Daryl Surratt. So I might have to get coffee for Dave and Joel, but that would be okay because Daryl Surratt would get coffee for me. And those people with like that concave chest syndrome, guys who get that, they're like the. Pectus excavatum or something? Yeah, they would be the the untouchable class. They would be... I'd only heard about this show in the context of people in the forums being like... Because I was not saying I was offended, because I'm careful about using that word in shelf life, but I was saying I was... I was describing my displeasure with something like... uh, Heaven's Lost Property or whatever. And they were like, what will happen if Funimation licenses this boob show? Are you going to cry? They listed a couple other shows. Like, what if you have to review... The one Quasar No Stigmata, or whatever the one, the boob-sucking one. Quasar Quasar No Stigmata. They had a list. I looked them up. All right, our food is here. No, is this our food? I think this is our food, so I'm going to stop recording. Swift as the coursing river, with all the force of a great typhoon, with all the strength of a raging fire, mysterious as the 